Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa, and I am on air with my co-hosts, Emily, Matt, and Jasmine. How's it going, guys? Good. Good. Doing good. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Or Sunday. Oh, that's right. It's actually, that's right. (laughs) Friday is the new Sunday. Friday's the Yes, we always record on Fridays for the Sunday show, so. That's right. How was your week, everybody? Uh, you know, just another week in the life under semi quarantine, mm-hmm. pandemic style. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Lots of well, masks. It was all right. I can't complain. Yeah, the weather is breaking, which is thank God. It's no longer sweltering around here. Yeah, I love cool nights. I love the fall. Me so. too. All Me right. Too. Well, this week we'll be talking about unionizing efforts for employees at Housing Works. Bob Woodward's new book on Trump, bipartisan effort towards climate change, and a very interesting story about castration in Nigeria. So (laughs) let's kick off today's episode with some local news. Matt, take it away. Okay. So for local news, I was kind of tempted to do a piece on the spike in shootings that have been occurring this summer, Uh, a lot of gun violence, but most of us are aware of it. I, I even know a, a bystander that got shot in the back um, from one of those shootings. It's like a complex issue, but like violence is kind of up everywhere in America due to like the economic instability of the pandemic. So um, it doesn't seem like that much of a mystery. Um, but if, if you guys all want to talk about that afterwards, I, I do think it's worth talking because, you know, gun violence is a terrifying thing and it's affecting a lot of people right now. But I figured people had heard, have been thinking about that. It's been getting a lot of coverage. So I thought I would talk about um, something different about uh, a group that's unionizing, which is only slightly related if you consider that economic depression is a a big uh, cause of violence and everything. And I think unionization is a great way of, um, at least for some people, of getting a little bit of economic stability. So uh, AM New York reported, quote, several former employees of Housing Works claim that the downtown Brooklyn nonprofit fired them during the COVID-19 pandemic as retribution for involvement in an ongoing unionization effort, end quote. Housing Works is a nonprofit that provides a variety of services, but mostly focuses on housing for the homeless and those in danger of becoming homeless. I've worked with them before in my part-time job as a housing specialist for a homeless shelter. Um, they're a pretty, you know, established uh, nonprofit um, th- that works like uh, in regards to homelessness. Um, the evidence that the employees were fired out of retaliation was basically how Housing Works justified why the was how Housing Works justified why the employees were fired. They said, Housing Works said that they were, that their position was no longer in existence. Uh, one claimant, Rebecca Mitnick points out, uh, she said, quote, my position could not have been made redundant because they always need case managers, which she was, and we have such high caseloads. And a few days after she was fired, she saw a posting for new case manager, for a new case manager role, at Housing Works on LinkedIn. 
Union.com. Another employee who was involved in unionization efforts, which started, I think, last February. There were so like the company, you you go around, you collect signatures from people, and then you uh, then there's like a process to like get um, unionization in, in like the legal way. Um, and so that's what they were involved in, like getting signatures. Another employee who was involved in that was laid off and he was not offered an alternative position, which was the policy the company had publicly stated. This ex-employee applied for other positions within Housing Works, but he never heard back. The, uh, the AM New York article has a statement from the president of Housing Works, um, and they put it, quote, the president of Housing Works, Matthew Bernardo, denied that any of the company's 196 total furloughs and layoffs since March were a result of union activity, nothing, noting that they still employ union campaigners, end quote. Employees of Housing Works had been involved in a union drive which would culminate in a vote to or not to unionize. This vote was pushed back by a Trump-appointed official at the National Labor Relations Board, which normally acts to hold up unionization efforts and workers' rights. With the vote to unionize further pushed six months to a year back, the union organizers have become a bit restless. The other option is the non-legal one, which would be more of a wildcat strike, uh, but an unofficial, unsanctioned strike like that would be fairly difficult morally because with the pandemic making the work of housing works even more important than it already was, this is probably unlikely and uh, would be very, um, you know, harmful. Um, and it'd be hard for people that do that type of work to step away right now um, because, you know, homelessness is, continues to be a problem and then exposure to the virus um, would make things dangerous. Housing Works, uh, they run two isolation shelters for clients of uh, homeless shelters who get COVID-19 or have symptoms of COVID-19. Um, two of my clients uh, went to one last week. Uh, so they do a lot of good work, but they're also, it doesn't sound like they're being entirely transparent <laughs> or um, too great about supporting the workers' uh, efforts to unionize workers' rights are important. Uh, I support unionization, but I do think that we're going about it kind of all wrong. Um, it's very confrontational. In American history, workers and management have been pitted against each other. It's very combative. One way of lessening this is what has been done in other countries around the world. Uh, Germany, for example. In Germany, by law, union representatives are part of the board on the company. So when decisions about the company are made, the union is there in the room to uh, sculpt that decision. The shared responsibility of the health of the company is something that the employees are with um, every step of the way. The way workers' rights in America works, however, is that bosses or owners or whatever management, they make a decision and all the workers, after that fact, you know, we either put up with the decision or we fight it and like go on strike, uh, which is not a very healthy uh, way of running business, I think. Um, ideally, I'd like the workers to be more 
than just involved in boardrooms, just like one union rep uh, with surrounded by other people. Um, and, you know, because I, I think, you know, workers should be running the companies because we are the company, <laughs> you know, we do do the actual work. But until then, this German model seems to be a step in the right direction. Um, I don't know um, if the plaintiffs, um, if the claimants that were bringing uh, charges that they were fired out of retaliation, if that's going to pan out. Um, but in the months to come, we will see if Housing Works does get unionized. How interesting. So uh, you said Housing Works is a nonprofit you have experience with, Matt, like working with? Yeah. Yeah. I work for a shelter that um, kind of works in collaboration and under the under DHS and Housing Works is um, just kind of like another company that provides housing and uh, they also, because like homeless um, shelters or like organizations that deal with homelessness, there's like a lot of different appendages, right? So it's also helping to facilitate with like um, medical needs, uh, therapists, housing, of course, um, you know, a lot of kind of stuff. And so Housing Works is involved in the in all that. Interesting. And I guess a good reminder you think that, that not... the... oh. Go ahead. I was just going to ask Matt, since you had worked with them, do you think that them unionizing would be a good idea? Like, would it benefit the, the workers for Housing Works? Um, they didn't really go over the demands too much. I didn't I actually don't remember seeing any of the demands in the article. It hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, so I'm not sure what they're pushing for. Um so I can't I can't speak to if it if there sounds reasonable or whatever. But generally, my experience is unions generally only push for stuff that um, that is feasible that just makes the workers um, less stressful and able to do their jobs better. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't know what the specifics are. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say it's interesting because it's it's a good reminder that nonprofits are businesses too where they can they also have a bottom line that they're worried about sometimes more than employees i guess and again yeah matt's right like we don't know what they're pushing for but also in my experience in general unions when when employees are pushing for them it's because there's something that they need that they're not getting yeah. in their work environment there's also something to be said for um with a nonprofit or a lot of community-based type things or things that are related to what they call like caring professions. Sometimes like that can be used against the workers because it can be made to seem as though like you don't care about the population that you serve because you're demanding higher pay or like you want to be able to take reasonable like days off and stuff like that. So I think that's true. A lot of people do forget that, yeah, it's a nonprofit and it's a lot of like forms of work you might go into out of the goodness of your heart, but you're still a worker that needs to be compensated fairly for your labor. Absolutely, Jasmine. And actually, there's been a lot of that talk happening with regards to teachers, right? And them like putting their lives on the yeah. line right now. And like, you know, do it for the kids. And they're already like underpaid in this country where they have to buy their own school supplies out of their own pockets. Um, and it is it's a job like they deserve all the rights of workers, including safety. 
and fair fair pay yeah yeah there's Mm -hmm. teachers making like living wills in texas right now there was a young black woman in south carolina she was the first teacher to die of covid let me see yeah so she was named what's and she's so like happy like such a you can see videos of her and you can tell the kids really cared about her and it's it's a shame it's like just expected that you know you're acceptable collateral demetria bannister was her name 28 Mm -hmm. years old yeah well i definitely think my only experience with unions is when i was working um at the met actually and i had just um passed my entry stage to get there and then it shut down because of covid so i think they had good um good intentions definitely and definitely spoke well for um, the employees there, but good luck to the people at Housing Works. I know they do a lot of work in the community and definitely unsung heroes for people who need that sort of extra assistance. Mm. All righty. Well, thank you so much for bringing us that story, Matt. We're going to take our first musical break today. We have a nice mix of music for you this Sunday. Our first track is a new one. It comes from an artist named Ileana, and it is called Thinking. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Stuck on the highway, heading to your place I'm fine It's three in the morning and I started bawling when I lied I said that I'm sorry and then you ignored me Should I leave right now? Someone help me Thinking of the things you do. All 
Alrighty, so welcome back to Objections to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And Jasmine, bring us the national news, please. Okay, so given the state of things, when I read national news for the U.S., I try to find sources outside of the U.S. So this is um, an article that was written for BBC.com called Trump Deliberately Played Down Virus, Woodward Book Says. So Bob Woodward, you probably know that name from All the President's Men. He and Carl Bernstein were the journalists that broke Watergate. Um, Bob Woodward interviewed Mr. Trump 18 times from December to July. His book, Rage, will be released on Tuesday, September the 15th. According to tapes of these interviews between Woodward and President 45, uh, the president knew COVID-19 was deadlier than the flu before it hit the country, but wanted to play down the crisis. He's quoted as telling Woodward that the virus was, quote, deadly stuff, but the president said he had wanted to avoid causing public panic. Trump told Woodward on February 7th that the coronavirus was deadlier than the flu, saying, quote, it goes through the air. The air, you just breathe the air and that's how it's passed. It's also more deadly than even your strenuous flus. Later that month, the president promised the virus was, quote, very much under control and that the case count would soon be close to zero. So that's what he was saying publicly. He also publicly implied the flu was more dangerous than COVID-19. On Capitol Hill in early March, the president said, just stay calm, it will go away. But after the White House declared the pandemic a national emergency, the president told Woodward in a tape on February, on March 19th, sorry, quote, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. In a tweet on Thursday, Trump asked why Woodward had not reported his quotes on COVID-19 earlier if he thought they were bad and dangerous. Speaking from the White House earlier on this past Wednesday, the president told reporters, I don't want people to be frightened. I don't want to create panic, as you say, and certainly I'm not going to drive this country or the world into a frenzy. We want to show confidence. We want to show strength. The president, who's running for re-election in November, said that the Woodward book was, quote, a political hit job. The current White House press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, said the president never downplayed the virus once again. The president expressed calm. The president was serious about this. However, you know, as we all know, the president downplayed the virus from the very beginning. And even in recent weeks, his advisors began speaking of the coronavirus in the past tense as if the problem were gone. Um, and the article continues to talk about other aspects of this book that's coming out, um, other things that are revealed in this tape. But I wanted to focus on the fact that this information was sat on from February until now and what the wider implications of that are. Because I, I know there's there's been some debate as to whether or not that was ethical to know that he's publicly saying that it's not really that serious when he's telling you in private that he knows it to be deadly. So that was the thing I wanted to discuss. 
Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? I've I've been uh, I've been wondering that myself. Um, it, it's it's a bit odd. I I don't think I I don't think I understand the journalistic rule. Like, I can't think of any rule where it's like you sit on information until your book is ready. Um, but yeah, yeah. I I was having the same question. It is bothersome. I think. Not bothersome. It's potentially, you know, unethical. But um, again, I guess the the other question is, would it have made a difference to the public's reaction? Like, or I guess, I don't know. I guess if, if enough, like a lot of really important bodies were saying it was really dangerous and worse than the flu, and would someone else contradicting the president's statement have made a difference? Which again, I guess, doesn't necessarily change the answer to the question of whether it was okay that he didn't reveal this information until his book came out, which obviously is a financial angle for himself personally, but like, would it have made a difference? Well, I have seen stories that he knew earlier. Remember when uh, we started this year, the, the first story I did was about coronavirus spreading in China and how it was moving to, it was leaving China and coming, you know, in this direction or, um, there were stories, not this story in particular, that Trump was alerted way before this. Um, now, my question, is, and I do think it was unethical that, you know, Trump, you know, kept it to himself or didn't really um, kind of play it down. A lot of the reports I've seen, he he's clearly saying, yes, I played it down. I like to play it down. I will continue to play it down. Like I've seen, um, you know, lots of videos this week about him using those exact statements. But my point is. Like the rem, what if he would have done something earlier and not saying that, not saying that, you know, what do you guys think would have been different if he would have let this out earlier? Right. You mean like Woodward? Yeah. Cause I think, I think the fact that Trump was lying is, but like that's that in and of itself, I think is very obviously, uh, you know, assuming that all of this is true, like hor- horrifically, grossly terrible. Um, and unethical I mean, not just Woodward, also Trump. Murderous. Like, right. Like, yeah, what that's if specifically. Right. Well, tr- I mean, Trump, had, I mean, I think there's examples in other countries. And if, if the federal government had taken things more seriously to start out with and how, you know, lower death rates, um, a healthier, yeah. you know, a healthier population yeah. in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Having yeah. access to I PPE do. for all the people in the hospitals as well. Yep. Yep. I, I remember seeing... Um, I've seen a few people saying that, oh, they don't think because of the people that are like loyalists or they listen to whatever, like they are going to be on his side no matter what, basically saying that they don't think it would have made a difference with his base. But I actually, I disagree with that. Like, I definitely think, especially with something like a virus where there's these like orders of magnitude when it comes to timing. I think it makes a huge difference that in the beginning of February, like there's, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's so many different articles that have been written. Like if you had shut certain things down like a week earlier, two weeks earlier, three weeks, Mm -hmm. I think it would have made a massive difference if he had said something that was in line with what some of these other groups were saying earlier on and there were steps taken to like Teresa was saying to get people the help that they needed 
And it, it really doesn't sit well with me at all that this information was sat on for the sake of a book because events, it's almost like waiting to see how long he's gonna drag out the line to then have like a body of work to write about, which I don't, yeah, yeah I, it really, I find it very disturbing that that happened. Yeah. And it's also, it feels like anti almost journalistic again. Like, I don't know if there's some rule, right, Matt, like in the book of journalism, whoever's writing it, but like, it feels like the point is to get information out in a timely matter. And then you, you know, you write the book about how you did it, how you got that big story out later on with like all these details that aren't like, you know, important to national safety. But yeah, like I think Jasmine's right. I think him sitting on this information I mean, we'll never know if it would have made a huge difference or not, because back in February, a lot of people were still very skeptical of this. You know, like I was literally in I flew to Spain in February because they're, you know, yeah, yeah, like, you know. Right. And there's there's also still a lot of people. There's so many people talking about it's not real, that it's a hoax. And it's a lot of a lot of it has to do with the way that he's portrayed the media and denied it being a big deal and saying it's a small thing. So had this come out sooner, I don't think like even the most out there people, I don't think they would if they follow everything that he says, had it come out that he said it's real. I think that it would have made a difference, you know, and even if it wouldn't have saved thousands of people, you know, it makes a difference even if it saved a handful, you know, or kept made a few people more skeptical about being out in the open or being having these parties and things, you know, because we've seen how like one person can lead to like these exponential numbers. So it's, I don't think we'll ever be able to fathom like what could have been if more people were aware and really believed that this thing was real and to just do simple stuff like don't hang out together, wear a mask, you know, it's. Actually, that is a really interesting point. So back in February, Trump had been given information saying it was it was an aerosol virus, which is fascinating because. It took almost like I it took a very long time for people to even admit that. Like for the first, I don't got. I, I mean, I'll time this time warp of a year. I don't know if it was weeks or months or whatever. But like, there was a lot of people like you know weren't wearing masks because it wasn't. It was mostly you know just don't touch stuff and don't touch your face, right. And, right? And like the fact that he knew not only that it was dangerous, but that you could it's just in the air and hangs out in the air. Yeah, like, at my job it. it it was all of this, you know, they call it hygiene theater now, you know, like wiping stuff down, wiping things down when the primary way is like through droplets. At one point, even I think the CDC was telling people not to wear masks. Like there were things happening like in March yes. that where it was saying, do not wear something, you know, and the person that's you know in charge of the country, knowing a full like six weeks ahead that it is something that travels in the air. I, you know, I just, it's so disappointing. And I think it's unconscionable that this would have been held back. That would have, I think it would have been such a different situation now had that broken in February. The, the thing that, so I was trying to pull up a quick article to see what Woodward's defense was. And he said basically that, he just didn't know if Trump was telling the truth. And the weird thing is, is we don't know if Trump actually 
new like just because the virus ended up being an aerosol transmitted thing like trump could have been just like doing the trump bullshit thing and that ended up being correct and a broken clock is right twice a day right that's wild yeah Yeah. i don't know why woodward waited so long because like once the information was out i i don't know i mean so like when he and bernstein or whatever were doing the nixon stuff like they were working for a newspaper which is like releasing stuff as you get it and now that woodward is doing these books i guess he feels like it's more like he's writing history report instead of like reporting so i don't know why i waited so long but it is weird that like yeah he just he said he didn't know he needed to understand where trump was getting his information and so that's why he didn't want to um release the information or whatever I don't know why, because like his first book, nobody believed him because like his main source, which is rumored to be Steve Bat- Bannon, never went, uh, never went off on the record, or uh, he gave him anonymity, and so like his first book, nobody really gave a shit about because you didn't have the name next to it. So like at this point, he's an old man. It's like you could have like saved some people on your way out, even though like I don't know. I'm with you. It's, it's, it's it seems like a very sad and missed opportunity to um, save a whole bunch of people. Yeah, I mean, they report on every other lie that this man tells, it gets widely reported. And there's a lot of issues with that. But I think, especially with something like a virus that's rapidly spreading, I think that, you know, the thing that would push people to be more cautious is the better thing to talk about, you know, because I'd rather have people act in an abundance of caution and then turn out to be maybe it wasn't airborne than to play it the other way. And now we're in the mess we're in now where it's just not controllable. Yeah. Or at least just like once the information, once we started to understand things better, just so like Trump supporters could hear Trump say the thing that the CDC was finally saying, right. Just to have those things line up, like, yeah right but now this is even more back and forth and it's like we were talking about with the vaccines last week you know like the going back and forth and like yes no yes no like that makes it even harder like for people to have like it erodes confidence even further and that's how i feel about this you know like this is a man his whole career is based on acting in the public interest and putting things out that the public needs to know and to have someone with that legacy make this decision, I think it's damaging, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. All right. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for bringing us that story. Um, Definitely wish we would have known earlier than later for sure. We're going to go into our next music break. I have a throwback track for you today. Um, I chose this track just because of the story I'm going to bring you after. This is Rihanna with Man Down. We'll be right back. Oh, no.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now I'll take us right into our world news story. All right. So information from this story was drawn from the BBC as well as a website called uh, New Central Africa. So lawmakers in Nigeria's Kaduna state have approved surgical castration as a punishment for those convicted of raping children under the age of 14. 
The development was announced by Majority Leader of the State Parliament, Haruna M.A. Anuna, on Thursday in a tweet. The move follows public outrage over a wave of rapes which prompted the nation's state governor to declare a state of emergency. The new law broadened the scope under which sexual offenses can be penalized in Nigeria and removed the time limit of two months during which rape cases had to be tried before they became ineligible to be heard in court. Ooh. Currently, the state penal law provides for 21 years of imprisonment for rape of an adult and life imprisonment in case of a child. Since 2015, when the new law was introduced, about 40 rape suspects have been charged in the country of some 200 million people, according to the National Agency for the Prohibition of Trafficking in Persons, which has sex offenders list on its website. Kaduna State Governor Nazir El Rafai had in July advocated stiff punishment for rape victims. He had then said convicts often rape more persons after serving their jail time. He had this to say in a quote. In addition to life imprisonment or 21 years imprisonment, anyone convicted of rape will have his organs surgically removed so that even after he finishes his term, he will not be able to rape someone again. So long as the tool exists, there is a likelihood that he may go back and do it again. Most of the perpetrators are young people, so even after 21 years, they can still come back and continue. He had also said that the state would expunge the provision for bail conditions for rape convicts. Surgical castration is not widely practiced in the world and is considered controversial in a few places where it's still used. It is not in the guidance guidelines drawn up by the International Association for the Treatment of Sexual Offenders, and critics argue that the physical effects are irreversible and may have serious physical and mental consequences. Yeah. So what do you guys think? Um, this, this story just boggles me. I mean... It seems extreme. It seems absolutely extreme, like two wrongs don't make a right. Um, I do think that the governor's, um, his his comments about how the likelihood of someone to go back and do it again once they be released from prison, I think there is some, um, there's some research out there that shows the likelihood of sexual offenders doing it more than once in their life. However, I don't know. For me, castration seems like it's going to do more harm that it will do uh, people better to, to be my <laughs> brain. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah. I, I, I mean, like, what a 180 to go from having a two-month, like, uh, what's it called, um, limit on, statute, on, like, a statutory limit, I guess, is yeah. what that's called. Like, that's, like, so crazy short. Yeah. Like, that, that's, that's what stuck out in my mind too yeah i heard you yeah i heard you make a noise when you heard that i'm like wow to go from that to this is like whoa <laughs> like um, appreciate the enthusiasm you, let's focus on that first thing yeah, i mean there has I mean, been a significant increase in rape you know um in nigeria and in in south africa that whole region of africa as a whole um over the last couple of years with it just becoming really outlandish so i can understand the urgency of this but maybe there's a better way. I mean, uh, yeah, I think it, it falls under that cruel and unusual punishment thing that um, is just it, there's something very uh, violent and and scary about it. On top of the fact that, like, God, you know, God forbid someone's wrongly convicted as if, you know, that never happens. And then there's this horrible second crime committed. Um, it's it's scary. Yeah. I, I don't I don't like it um at all. I think that 
it sounds like it puts on this show of doing something very serious about the problem of rape and sexual violence. But as we know here, and it's something that happens around the world, like rape culture is global, is deeply embedded. You know, these crimes often happen in such a way where it is your word against somebody else. And there's also people that you know, they, if they are biased, for example, like they might, you know, I know just as an example, it's very common in the United States to associate someone being gay with them, preying on children and things. So, you know, what? imagine being in a situation where someone has the power to accuse you of that because they don't like you. And then you've now been surgically altered for the rest of your life you know I, I think that there's so many other ways that you can first and foremost support victims um people who have survived those types of assaults and really like creating a, a safer environment for them but i these really draconian punitive measures i don't think ever end up stopping anything from happening you know we still have the death penalty in this country and we still have people get sexually assaulted and murdered every day knowing that that's a possibility. So I I doubt very strongly that it's going to actually do what they think it will do. I just think it's going to end up hurting a lot of people, you know, for, I wish there was a stronger way to say it, but I, I just, I, I, I don't agree with it. I don't think of it as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. death penalty is a good analogy because it's, it's the idea of a deterrent, but it's been proven that it's not a deterrent. That's not how crime works. That's not how violence works. Um, and like when it comes to child rape, pedophilia is something that we need to talk about <laughs> and look at directly as as this awful thing that occurs and, uh, you know, setting up the, this, did you say like Old Testament type? show um it doesn't protect i said draconian people. but yeah it is like old testament hmm. i mean i i can't help but to think like if this happens to someone like what type of aftercare happens for for the violator i mean you know i don't imagine this being something that's like they do it and then they just like let you go um in the streets or whatever but what like what what would they do I don't know. I, I, I'm just thinking about people who would have this happen to them and how they would be able to follow up with their lives or what happens afterwards. It just seems to really just damage um, any possibility a person may be healing from their heinous crimes or coming back around to be a, you know, positive contributor to society. I, I, it just seems like. Yeah, like, I don't think that's the goal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's to me, it seems immoral. <laughs> Um, it's very interesting. It's coming from a head of state, but yeah, um, I hope this doesn't happen. I hope this, this does, is not the way and that I'm able to give you a follow-up story that this, um, yeah, that it didn't go down. So interesting stuff. Uh, so Emily, please give us some good news. Sure thing. My pleasure. All right. So, um, we're going to pivot here. We're going to pivot back to the U.S., believe it or not, for the good news story today. Um, so this good news story comes primarily from a September 10th Washington Post article by uh, 
Juliet Alperin, Alperin uh, and Stephen Mufson. Uh, apologies about name pronunciation. Um, and the article is titled, In Rare Bipartisan Climate Agreement, Senators Forge Plan to Slash Use of Potent Greenhouse Gas. And then it, the article is also subtitled, uh, Proposal Would Cut Hydrofluorocarbons Used in Air Conditioning and Refrigerators by 85% by 2035, which would be very cool. So the article explains, quote, in a rare show of, of defiance of the Trump administration, uh, which, you know, sidebar is already a win, in my opinion, um, key, Repu- um, key Senate Republicans joined Democrats on Thursday in agreeing to phase out chemicals widely used in air conditioning and refrigeration that are warming the planet. Despite the Trump administration's refusal to join a global agreement to reduce hydrofluorocarbons, which were among the world's most potent drivers of climate change, a rare push by U.S. firms and environmentalists appears to have swayed lawmakers. Uh, so a little another sidebar here. So that global agreement in question um, that the article mentioned is the Kigali Amendment from 2016, which is an amendment to the 1987 Montreal Protocol. And for those who are like me and currently need a refresher from high school science class, uh, the Montreal Protocol was put in place to save the ozone layer from uh, the depletion being caused by chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. Oh. Yes. I was confusing them. Yes. Me too. Uh, when I was first looking at this. So before those CFCs were banned in 1996, they were used in things like aerosol sprays, air conditioners, and refrigerators. And as it turns out, hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, uh, started to be widely used as a replacement for CFCs. Uh, The article explains, quote, while that helped repair the ozone layer, scientists have identified HFCs as a significant driver of climate change, thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. Cutting these emissions, one of the fastest growing greenhouse gases in the United States, could avert a 0.5 degree Celsius or 0.9 degree Fahrenheit global temperature rise by the end of the century. So the current Senate proposal would phase out HFCs over the next 15 years, cutting both production and importation by 85% and setting the U.S. on uh, setting the U.S. up to meet the Kigali agreement. Uh, I'm sorry, Kigali amendment targets. Environmental activists and business advocates are able to join forces on this bill because U.S. corporations manufacture um, their own different and less harmful, which uh, I wrote safer question mark. I don't know if that means safer or not, uh, but at least less harmful coolants and see a shift away from HFCs uh, as a huge business opportunity for themselves to put their own alternative chemical out on the market. Uh, so one thing to note, however, is that, you know, quote, the proposed phase down would will be offered as an amendment to a bipartisan energy bill, although it's unclear whether it will clear both chambers and be signed into law by President Trump before Congress adjourns in January. So, yeah, it's it's not it hasn't been passed or anything, but um, the idea that there's even like a number of Republicans behind this bill like any bipartisan effort in terms of environmental efforts right now just seems so wildly unlikely, but very important. Um, And then finally, like the last note on the story is that as the planet warms, the demand for air conditioning is growing globally and countries such as India and China have adopted plans to increase energy efficiency and use less harmful refrigerants. So hopefully the U.S. will join them. And that's my good news story. And yeah, like California is on fire uh, and burning. And I wanted to try and find a good news article about the environment 
just because I feel like we all need it right now. And there seems like there might not be any good news out there. And this seemed like a little bright spot that maybe we're moving in a good direction. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Less harmful refrigerants. Is, is that the right thing? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and then I was like, does that mean it's safe? Like, I, you know, I think there is room for, you know, like, I, they didn't think that HFCs were going to be, you know, their own disaster. So I guess there's always a chance that the new chemical will have its own side effects that we're not aware of. But yeah, I mean, who knows? I feel like they're like, like the the one in the 80s, the chlorofluorobal carbons or whatever. It's like, they're like James Bond movies where they get less sexist as they go along, but they'll never not be sexist. So funny. Yeah, until there's like a female James Bond. Interesting. That would be Jane Bond. Jane, Jane Bond. What? Jane. Oh, I was trying okay. to think of it and then I just gave up on thinking of one. Yeah. Uh, but that is good news. It's, it's okay. nice to hear. Yeah. Well, thank- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we have a little extra time. Yeah, We always hear so much about them. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a list of uh, a short list of other articles that like, I I did a lot of research. So like I started looking at at good news stories like two days ago and I like couldn't find anything. And I was like, Oh no, (laughs) (laughs) or like nothing like good enough (laughs) that would combat. Like I did, I found that they're making um, an all black golden girls remake which is really cool and really fun, but also doesn't seem to like outweigh like California burning to the ground. You know what I mean? Like it seemed like frivolous in the face of that. Well, it's good to hear any little bits of good news stories. Yeah. With the, I mean, with the climate, who knows? Absolutely. All right. Well, we have a wonderful track. So hopefully that will, uh, save us some time. If we could just give a little bit more energy to the That'd be really great. So I think that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you all so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on the RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more of our independent Brooklyn media. And we're going to play you out with a tribute song, our final track of the day, in loving memory of Mr. Ronald Bell, the co-founder of Cool and the Gang, who died suddenly this week on September 9th in his home in the Virgin Islands. So. I love this song. Thank you so much. This is one of Jasmine's recommendations for today. We're going to play you out with Summertime Madness by Cool and the Gang. See you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.